Attention, all troops. He's alive. Alive. Welcome to the Rapnolis. Every weekend, especially if the weather was bad. My best friend would come over, and we would plan to play some sort of game. We would sit in my family's kitchen, usually having some snack, planning what it was going to be. Would we play D&D? Would we play Axis and Allies? Or maybe we'd just play Monopoly. Our plans could be completely thrown off if, during the snack and planning phase, while watching this small television that was in my family's kitchen, something good came on. For a while, one of the local television stations was on a Planet of the Apes kick. On a Saturday or Sunday, starting at, say, noon, they would start showing either the Planet of the Apes movies or the television series, and then they would just play it throughout the day. If that happened to be the case, no games would get played that day, and let's say the weather cleared up and we could go play outside, forget it. We were deeply immersed in Ape World at that point. Occasionally, someone would come in and say, are you watching Planet of the Apes again? And they would complain that we weren't playing outside or using our imaginations. But the reason we played these games or played outside was as a form of escapism. And the Planet of the Apes universe be it the movies or be it the TV show, is so well thought out and so immersive that simply by watching, we felt that same escape. As I've gotten older, my feelings for the Planet of the Apes franchise has not dimmed. If you put it on in the morning here in my house now, I will sit there and watch it, and then I will get out my box set and put in the next one and the next one and the next one. It is the perfect way to distract me and to basically make me lose a day. I've probably spent weeks of my life in the ape world, and I do not regret one of them. On today's show, we're going to talk about Planet of the Apes, the original movie. We will talk a little bit about the sequels and some of the other stuff, but today we will concentrate primarily on the 1968 film. We'll talk about the book the movie's based on, the people in front and behind the camera, the film's release, reception, music, and we'll throw in a few surprises here and there. We have great guests today. Vic Sage, Rob Flack O'Hara, and Doug McCoy are all back to provide some information about Planet of the Apes. As always, we have an info-packed episode ahead of us, so without further ado, let's start the show. Planet of the Apes is a 1968 science fiction film. It was directed by Franklin J. Schaffner, and it starred Charlton Heston, Roddy McDowell, Kim Hunter, Linda Harrison, and Maurice Evans. It would be the first of a series of five films based in this world, and those were released between 1968 and 1973, all of them released by 20th Century Fox. The film is based on a novel by Pierre Boulet, 
It is called La Planète de Singe, which I am sure I am not pronouncing right. Boulet was born in 1912 and passed away in 1994. French novelist, probably known for two works, Planet of the Apes, which came out in 63, and another great book that was turned into a great movie, The Bridge Over the River Kwai, which would become The Bridge on the River Kwai. He had been an engineer serving with the Free French in Singapore. There he was captured and had to do forced labor, and he would use that experience to write Bridge Over the River Kwai. Planet of the Apes was published in France in 1963, and the first English version of it was translated by Zan Fielding and came out the very same year. That's where we get the title, Planet of the Apes. Now, while I love the title, Planet of the Apes, next year it was published in the UK as Monkey Planet, which I also love. Although, maybe when they release the films, the Monkey Planet films just doesn't have that same sense of drama that Planet of the Apes has. There are some things that both the movie and book have in common, and I do think that if you are a Planet of the Apes fan, you should read the book. Probably one of the more dramatic differences between the book and the movie is the ending. Now, there's a bit of a spoiler here. I'm going to sum up the movie briefly later, so just be ready. In the book, the main character returns to Earth with a woman who he picked up on the planet and his son and discovers that Earth has been taken over by apes since he had been gone for so long, which kind of leaves the whole idea of the book up for interpretation. Makes you wonder, was he ever on a different planet to begin with? Is this just what's going to happen to any world that has humans in it? It's a pretty memorable ending and one that the author really liked. Another difference between the book and the movie is Dr. Zaius's role. They sort of flesh out Dr. Zaius a lot more in the film, which is maybe why he's a lot more popular after you've seen the movie. The jump from book to film wasn't a quick process. Originally, the screenplay was written by none other than Rod Serling, the creator of The Twilight Zone, but would go through dozens of rewrites before filming began. It was the director Blake Edwards who originally got Ape Fever and contracted Serling, but as time went on and they started to attach people to the project, namely Charlton Heston, he suggested that Franklin J. Schaffner direct the film, and it would be Schaffner who would take the film and run, he would not use Serling's screenplay. Instead, he would use a rewrite that was done by Michael Wilson. Wilson kept the basic structure of what Serling had done, but he rewrote the dialogue, and because it would have been too expensive, he took Serling's idea of setting the Planet of the Apes in a sort of high-tech society to a more primitive one that would save a lot of money in the long run, and would give Planet of the Apes its very unique look and feel. If you were interested in what Serling's work looked like, you can actually get to see a bit of it acted out, because to convince Fox that Planet of the Apes should be made, the producers shot a screen test using the Rod Serling draft of the script. They also used very early versions of ape makeup. This test footage is included on several of the DVD releases of the film, and you can see it online. It's really cool. Heston plays Thomas, which was the early name for the Taylor character that he would eventually play. But more importantly, Edward G. Robinson appears as Dr. Zaius, rounding out the cast of James Brolin, who nobody knew of at the time, playing Cornelius, and Linda Harrison, who would go on to play Nova in the film as Zira. Today's show is brought to you by your local men's clothing store. Primitive humans stole your clothes while you were skinny dipping in the local watering hole? Don't worry, you can get a replacement at the local men's clothing store. You're treated like a prince, you look like a duke, you'll have that royal feeling. 
You can rest assured, you're dressed assured. Your clothes are fit for a king. Gotta love those men's clothing stores. The film was produced by Arthur P. Jacobs, who bought the rights for the Boulay novel before it was even published. He shopped the film around with very little interest, but after his film What a Way to Go had been a success, and he had started pre-production on another film, namely Dr. Doolittle, he was able to convince the president of Fox, Richard Zanuck, to give the go to Planet of the Apes. A big worry of the studio was that the apes in the film would look phony. So, during that test footage I talked about, they ponied up $5,000 for the makeup. When the studio saw the makeup, they were very excited, but didn't greenlight the film because they didn't know if science fiction films would sell. At around the same time, the film Fantastic Voyage came out and became a big hit and showed that science fiction could have market viability. Unfortunately, Robinson, who would have been a great Dr. Zayas, decided to back out because at this point in his career he had a pretty weak heart and he didn't think that he could endure the rigors of having that makeup put on and having to walk around with it day in and day out. A popular claim about the makeup in the film is that it cost a million dollars. According to associate producer Mort Abrams, while they did spend a lot of money on makeup, maybe close to a half a million dollars, the marketing people thought that it would be better publicity if they said a million dollars. And it does. Hearing that round number, you think, wow, this has got to be some great makeup. The makeup effort was run by John Chambers. Chambers was a pioneer in film makeup and brought a technique he had used to give disfigured veterans of World War II a normal appearance. But then he spent hours at the Los Angeles Zoo studying apes and seeing how they make facial expressions. The makeup was so intense that during breaks in filming, the actors had to keep the masks on and to eat. They had to drink all their foods liquefied through straws. An interesting little phenomenon that happened is you had three types of apes in the film. You had gorillas, chimps, and orangutans. The groups of people in their makeup would start hanging out with the apes they were portraying. So you had chimps hanging with chimps, gorillas with gorillas. This wasn't required. It's just what happened. People felt more comfortable with their own type of ape, I guess. While watching the film, you will notice there are no female gorillas or orangutans. The film was directed by Franklin J. Schaffner. Schaffner was born in 1920 passed away in 1989, probably best known for four films, Planet of the Apes, of course, Papillon, Patton, and The Boys from Brazil. Originally, J. Lee Thompson was going to direct the film, and he co-owned the rights to the film with the producer Arthur Jacobs, but he had to back out because he was directing another film, McKenna's Gold. That's when Blake Edwards was brought into the job and contracted Serling. It would be Jacobs who would pick Schaffner to direct the film, mostly based on the recommendation of Charlton Heston, who had worked with Schaffner on The Warlord. Thompson would eventually direct some part of the ape universe. He directed two of the follow-up films, Conquest of the Planet of the Apes and Battle for the Planet of the Apes. After these messages, we will return. Oh, I wonder where I am. Got to get to a high point to survey the situation. Capture him! Oh no, I'm trapped by the apes. What kind of place is this where apes are the ruling class? What are they going to do with me? 
A little bit about the plot of the film. Four astronauts, Taylor, played by Charlton Heston, Landon, played by Robert Gunner, Dodge, played by Jeff Burton, and Stewart, played by an uncredited Diane Stanley, are in deep hibernation in a spaceship that crash lands on a lake on an unknown planet. They had been traveling for 2,006 years at near light speed, but due to science, they have only aged 18 months. When they wake up, the spaceship is sinking below the waves. Stuart has passed away because of a problem with her suspended animation chamber. They escape their ship, the Icarus. And I have to say the Icarus was never named that on screen, but it was later applied by a fan and is now generally accepted as the name for the ship. Once the crew gets to shore, things go horrible. They encounter a society that is dominated by apes where humans cannot talk and they're treated like wild animals. The spaceship, the Icarus, would be reused three times. It was used in Escape from the Planet of the Apes, the Planet of the Apes TV series, and the film The Illustrated Man. If you keep your eyes open in the film, you'll see there at the Natural History Museum, where some disturbing humans are on display, you'll also notice a large claw of some animal that they pass several times on a pedestal. This is a plaster cast of the foot of the monster that attacks the spaceship in Forbidden Planet. So a little crossover between Forbidden Planet and Planet of the Apes. Now a little bit more about the cast of this wonderful film. Charlton Heston played George Taylor. Heston was born in 1923, passed away in 2008 actor and political activist. He would appear in over 100 films, best known for his work in The Ten Commandments, Ben-Hur, and Planet of the Apes. Heston was always the first choice to play the role, although two other actors were considered for the role, Marlon Brando, who would have made a very different Taylor, and Rod Taylor, which would have been interesting, Taylor playing Taylor. Brando, you probably know from The Godfather and numerous other things, and Taylor's probably best known for his work in the science fiction classic The Time Machine and Alfred Hitchcock's The Birds. Heston was sick during much of the filming of the film, The Flu. If you watch the film, you can definitely hear it in his voice. Must have been a miserable experience for him. Roddy McDowell played Cornelius. Roderick McDowell was born in 1928, passed away in 1998. English actor, producer, photographer. Probably best known for his work in the Planet of the Apes film series. You're going to hear a little bit more about Roddy McDowell later as Vic presents him in Why Should I Know This Person? Kim Hunter played Zira. Kim Hunter, born in 1922, passed away in 2002. Academy Award-winning actress. She won that for her performance as Stella Kowalski in 1951's A Streetcar Named Desire. 
Ingrid Bergman turned down the role of Zira and later said that she really regretted doing so because it would have been a great opportunity to overcome what people thought of her and really kind of cut loose in a different type of role. Bergman is probably best remembered for her role as Ilsa Lund in Casablanca. Maurice Evans played Dr. Zayas. Maurice Herbert Evans passed away in 1989. He was born in 1901. He's a Shakespearean actor, probably best known to American audiences for his role on Planet of the Apes. He also played Samantha Stevens' father, Maurice, on Bewitched. Linda Harrison played Nova. This was her big role, playing Nova. She would play it in the first two Planet of the Apes films. She was in a relationship with the head of the studio at the time, Richard Zanuck, and would actually get pregnant during the film, so they had to be careful how they filmed it because she started to show as the movie went on. Later, Zanuck and her would get married, would be married for nine years and had two children. Ursula Andress, who was Honey Rider in the James Bond film Dr. No, was considered to play the role of Nova. Robert Gunner played Landon. Gunner was born in 1931 in New Jersey. His birth name was Robert Wolfmayer, probably best known for his work in Planet of the Apes and the 1966 film Our Man Flint. Jeff Burton played Dodge, born in 1925. He would appear in Planet of the Apes, Coffee, and Madam X, among other things. Rounding out the cast, you had Lou Wagner as Lucius, Buck Cartalian as Julius, Wright King as Dr. Galen, Woodrow Parfey as Maximus, and Diane Stanley as Stuart. Now, with a little bit more about one of these very talented people, is Vic Sage with Why Should I Know This Person? Hi friends, Vic Sage here with Why Should I Know This Person? And this time we're going to be taking a look at Planet of the Apes co-star Roddy McDowell. Roderick Andrew McDowell was born in London, England on September 17, 1928. At the tender age of five, he was enrolled by his mother into elocution courses, and by ten, McDowell landed his first film role as Peter Osborne in 1938's Murder in the Family, where he co-starred with Jessica Tandy. McDowell's mother brought he and his sister to the United States at the beginning of World War II. McDowell had already appeared in 18 films in his native country by that point. It was in 1941 that McDowell secured the role of Hugh in John Ford's Academy Award-winning film How Green Was My Valley. Roddy continued to work, mostly in child star roles in such films as 1943's My Friend Flicka and Lassie Come Home, where he met his lifelong friend, Elizabeth Taylor. Throughout his life, McDowell would appear in all manner of TV shows and motion pictures, and by the end, he had garnered 261 acting credits. A list such as that is far too long, but some of his notable appearances include The Twilight Zone, The Longest Day, Cleopatra, where he would co-star once again with Elizabeth Taylor, The Alfred Hitchcock Hour, 1966 Batman as the villainous bookworm, Rod Serling's Night Gallery, The Poseidon Adventure, three of the Planet of the Apes sequels, Escape from the Planet of the Apes, Conquest of the Planet of the Apes, and Battle for the Planet of the Apes. Of course, he also appeared in the live-action TV series as Galen. Even though he was originally uncredited, he lent his voice to the character of Vincent in Disney's The Black Hole, and was the great Peter Vincent in 1985's Fright Night and its sequel in 1988. Roddy did quite a bit of voice work for animated specials and TV series in his life. Some of the more notable roles include being the narrator for Chuck Jones' animated adaptation of The White Seal, as well as narrator and voice of Mowgli in Mowgli's Brothers. He was the voice of Samwise Gamgee in Rankin and Bass's The Return of the King, The Pirates of Darkwater, Camp Candy, The Legend of Prince Valiant, Darkwing Duck. He voiced the role of Jervis Tetch, a.k.a. the Mad Hatter, in the Batman animated series. 
He was Mr. Soil in Pixar's A Bug's Life, and his last role was as Dr. Hugh Trevor in Godzilla the series. He was once quoted about his love of film. I absolutely adore movies, even bad ones. I don't like pretentious ones, but a good bad movie, you must admit, is great. In 1974, Roddy found that love of film had put him under the investigation of film piracy and copyright infringement when the FBI raided his home. They seized the collection of films and television series that numbered 160 16mm prints and more than 1,000 video cassettes. This was before commercial videotapes were available to the public. Even though he had sometimes bought the film prints from the studio themselves, he didn't legally own them. They still belonged to the studios. McDowell had purchased Errol Flynn's film collection and the prints of his own directorial debut, Tam Lin, starring Ava Gardner, and transferred them all to tape for archival purposes. McDowell was not charged as he cooperated with the FBI in all ways and never actually sold any of his collection. Beside his film and TV work, Roddy had a great love for photography, publishing five books from his collection. So impressive was it that three months after his death, the Academy of Motion Pictures, Arts, and Sciences named its photo archive after him. The collection, which includes several million negatives and stills, was named the Roddy McDowell Photograph Archive and is housed at the Margaret Herrick Library. Roddy McDowell could also claim to have never earned an enemy during his life. The reasons being are the genteel man we saw in movies and television was in fact what McDowell truly was in real life. Even when he was playing the heel, you just couldn't help but love him. Maybe because he always had that twinkle in his eye. I'm going to alter my usual sign-off once again and tell you when I first became a fan of McDowell. It was when I saw the Night Gallery movie at my local drive-in with my father. Something about that first segment entitled The Cemetery just clicked with me. In particular, McDowell's performance and ability to make you feel bad for the character he's playing. My father and I would constantly quote his delivery of, Oh, Potify, when we would playfully put each other down. I was lucky enough to catch a marathon of the Planet of the Eight films at that same drive-in, and there was no doubt I was absolutely enamored by McDowell and continued to be so. I remember the morning I was woken up by one of my best friends informing me that Roddy had passed away. I was saddened to hear the news naturally, and I knew my dream of attending one of his weekly dinner parties was now never to be. In an effort to show my appreciation for all the entertainment he had given me and the world, I wore a black morning armband for an entire week. Planet of the Apes was well-received by critics at the time. Audiences loved it. It had a budget of $5.8 million and would go on to make $32.5 million. The film would garner an Honorary Academy Award for John Chambers for his outstanding makeup. It was also nominated for Best Costume Design and Best Original Score for a Motion Picture, not a Musical, for Jerry Goldsmith. The film was released on February 8, 1968 by 20th Century Fox. It had a running time of 112 minutes. Did you wonder what else was playing at the movies at the same time, Planet of the Apes? Well, here's Doug to answer that question with his segment, Also Ran. Hey, I'm Doug, and this is Also Ran. What also ran in theaters along with Planet of the Apes in 1968? Who was Charlton Heston battling besides Dr. Zaius and the gorillas? Well, there were rogue computers, mismatched roommates, zombies, space vixens, flying cars, private eyes, adorable orphans, unlikely gunslingers, and the Duke himself. Planet of the Apes came out early in 1968, 
Also coming out early in 1968 were films like Bandolero, The Graduate, and Blackbeard's Ghost. Coming out a little later in the year were films like 2001, A Space Odyssey, Yours, Mine, and Ours, The Odd Couple, Rosemary's Baby, The Thomas Crown Affair, the original, Inspector Clouseau, Hang 'em High, Funny Girl, Night of the Living Dead, Romeo and Juliet, Finian's Rainbow, Barbarella, Bullet, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, The Green Berets, Hellfighters, The Producers, the original, The Shakiest Gun in the West, and Oliver. So how did Charlton Heston and the Apes fare that year? Not too badly. They broke into the top ten, having the ninth biggest box office. For a bunch of primates, that's not too bad. So I'm Doug, and this has been Also Ran. Thanks, Doug. The music on Planet of the Apes is a sort of avant-garde composition created by Jerry Goldsmith. It has lots of unusual techniques. Supposedly, Goldsmith wore a gorilla mask while writing and conducting the score so that he could, and I quote, better get in touch with the movie. I'm not sure how true it is. If it is, it is one of the greatest images I could ever have in my head of a man writing and conducting gorilla mask on his head. It makes me think that's how I should work every day. I don't know a lot about music, but I do know that one of the claims to fame of the Planet of the Apes soundtrack is that it is the first completely atonal score in a Hollywood movie. Goldsmith's ambition was to create a score that captured this alien culture, yet it used familiar instruments. And to do that, he used various techniques, including looping drums, using an orchestra to imitate natural sounds, namely grunting apes, blowing horns without mouthpieces, playing instruments like a ram's horn, instructing his musicians on different ways to hold their instruments. He also used unconventional pieces of musical equipment, things like steel bowls to create percussion. As I talked about earlier, the film had a twist ending, and if you have not seen it, you probably have and don't even know it. At the very end, Charlton Heston is riding down the beach, and he comes across the Statue of Liberty, which is mostly buried in sand, and he laments that this was actually Earth. He had made it home, and in those intervening years, humans had blown things up, and apes had evolved to take over the planet. The area that Heston is riding in is called the Forbidden Zone, and it's this sort of barren, lifeless, off-limits world, and it would become a bit more important in future films as you ventured in to see what became of humanity. It was a bit disturbing. Where is the Forbidden Zone? Well, if the Statue of Liberty is there, then you know that the area where the apes live is probably the area around New York, namely New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut. At one point, Cornelius and Zira take out a map, and now if you have in your head what New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut look like, and you look down at this map, you'll get an idea of where this is supposed to be, namely the New York metropolitan area. In the second film, we actually get to see some of the post-apocalyptic ruins of New York, in later films, namely Battle for the Planet of the Apes, things move more toward the West Coast. You get the feeling that it's supposed to be Los Angeles. During the television series, it is most likely the San Francisco Bay Area. There would be several sequels, some attempts at rebooting, and even an animated Planet of the Apes. There were four initial sequels. 
Beneath the Planet of the Apes, which came out in 1970, Escape from the Planet of the Apes in 1971, Conquest of the Planet of the Apes in 1972, and Battle for the Planet of the Apes in 1973. Originally, Rod Serling was brought back to work on an outline for a sequel. Serling's outline would be discarded. Instead, they went with associate producer Mort Abrams and writer Paul Den's version, and that would become the basis for Beneath the Planet of the Apes. In 1974, there was a television series, Planet of the Apes, and in 1975, an animated Planet of the Apes television series. I love that Planet of the Apes television series. There have been reboots and remakes of Planet of the Apes. In 2001, director Tim Burton reimagined Planet of the Apes. Originally, when I saw it, I didn't love it. I found it a bit silly, and I guess from years of watching Planet of the Apes, I really wanted my Planet of the Apes movie to be taken more seriously. In retrospect, I've watched it again, and it's an okay film. I can watch it. Of course, if given my choice, I'd rather watch the original or Rise of the Planet of the Apes, which was a series reboot from 2011, which was directed by Rupert Wyatt. 2014, a sequel is coming out, and I cannot wait and hope that we get five, six more. I've actually heard that a third movie has already been green-lighted, so maybe we will get a full Planet of the Apes new series. If you haven't checked it out, I suggest you do. I think it was very well done. After these messages, we will return. Fruit Newtons are the cookies with delicious real fruit inside. And big, but sorry. We have no today. And now, back to the show. Planet of the Apes has appeared in book form. La Planète de Singe, which I guess is Monkey Planet or Planet of the Apes, depending on what dictionary I look at online. The original by Pierre Boulet. There was also a 2002 novel by William T. Quick called Planet of the Apes The Fall, which was to serve as a prequel to the 2001 film. And then in 2003, another book by Quick, Planet of the Apes Colony, which was a sequel to the 2002 novel. In 2011, an illustrated novel by Andrew Gaska called Conspiracy of the Planet of the Apes. Really cool. It's set in the same universe as the 1968 film. People make a big deal about Star Wars for its merchandising, but one of the first films to have a very big, large-scale merchandising tie-in was Planet of the Apes. And they had toys, collectibles, action figures, storybooks, trading cards, records, comics. Everything that you would eventually see in Star Wars, just Star Wars was so much more successful. Comic book adaptations of the film were published by Gold Key and Marvel. Malibu Comics later reprinted those Marvel adaptations when they had the license in the 80s, and Dark Horse Comics published an adaptation for the 2001 Tim Burton films. In 1983, a video game called Planet of the Apes was being developed for the Atari 2600, and it would have been the first computer game based on Planet of the Apes. Sadly, the video game crashed happened. In 2001, a video game for the series was officially released, and that one, of course, was based on the Tim Burton film. Now, a little bit more about that original Planet of the Apes video game is Rob Flack O'Hara with Talking Tech. Talking Tech. In 1983, John Marvin, an employee in the video game division of 20th Century Fox, was developing a Planet of the Apes video game for the Atari 2600. 
Right when the game was almost done, Marvin quit 20th Century Fox and moved to another gaming company. Three months later, 20th Century Fox closed down their game division, and the game never made it to store shelves, even though magazine ads advertising the game had already appeared in print. Another movie-based game named Alligator People, based on the 1959 horror film of the same name, was also shelved. For some unknown reason, while packing things up back in 1983, someone placed one of the Planet of the Apes prototype boards into an empty Alligator People case. In the mid-1990s, someone discovered that cartridge, and since no one had seen either game, people assumed it was Alligator People, even though in reality it was Planet of the Apes. It wasn't until 2002, when a real prototype of Alligator People was discovered, that someone put two and two together and realized that the game everybody had originally thought was Alligator People was in fact the long-lost Planet of the Apes prototype. It seems crazy that anyone could have thought the game was actually Alligator People, especially when the last level of the game features a blocky rendition of the Statue of Liberty and her torch poking out of an 8-bit beach. After being lost and mislabeled for years, dumps of Planet of the Apes finally made their way onto the internet, where it can currently be downloaded and played on any number of Atari 2600 emulators. If you want to play the real cartridge, good luck. Only two prototypes have ever been found. Thanks, Rob. Planet of the Apes was released on home video very quickly. It has been released on almost every major format, and you can often find it online for streaming. There's really not much of an excuse to not have seen Planet of the Apes, unless, of course, you do not like great movies or apes, in which case you really need to see somebody. I remember early on in my life, I was given a copy of Mad Magazine, which I guess at that point was pretty old. I think it was bought at a garage sale. It was from 1973, and it had a parody of the film called The Milking of the Planet That Went Ape. I remember poring over that and realizing that what I was looking at was a parody of another thing that I already really liked. It might have been one of my earliest memories of me associating parody with a pop culture phenomenon that I was familiar with. I would instantly start to make many more connections and understand the idea of parody after that. But Planet of the Apes has a special place in my heart because it was probably the first, or at least the earliest, I can remember. Every year, I watch something Planet of the Apes related. Sometimes I watch the entire series. As I get ready for the next film to come out, I will probably get myself into my AP mood, fire up all the films, and watch all of them again. I suggest you at least check out the first one. Admire the great makeup work, the real fun plot, and even the twist that you know is coming. This film is a classic, so if you know somebody who hasn't seen it, give them the gift of Planet of the Apes. It's a gift they will keep with them their entire lives. Thanks for listening to the show. For more retro fun, you can drop by the website at www.retroist.com. You can follow me on Facebook and Twitter. I'm at facebook.com slash retroist.com and twitter.com slash retroist. The music you hear on the show is by Peachy. If you have email for Peachy, you can email him at peachy at retroist.com. Thanks to Vic Sage for another great Why Should I Know This Person. If you have feedback for Vic, you can email him at vicsage at retroist.com. Thanks to Rob Flack O'Hara for another great talking tech. You can find Rob on The Retroist on a regular basis. You can also find him at his website, robohara.com. That's like robohara.com. 
While there, make sure you check out Rob's other great podcasts. Thanks to Doug McCoy for another great also ran. You can also find Doug at the website on a regular basis. You can also find him at his website, authordougmccoy.com. That's right, Doug's an author, has written some great retro books. While there, you might want to download one of his books and also check out some of Doug's podcasts. He has a very robust selection. Thank you for listening to the Planet of the Apes podcast. I hope you enjoyed it, and I hope you have a great weekend. It's a madhouse! A madhouse! This has been a Retro's production. Goodbye.